Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Georgine Rice Show on this Tuesday edition. Seven minutes after four o'clock is our time. Clark Hilton is engineering today's program. James Blind is producing. Today we will talk with Clarence Schuler. Dr. Schuler is the co-author, along with Gary Chapman, of the book titled Choose Greatness, 11 Wise Decisions That Brave Young Men Make. In the five o'clock hour, we'll talk with Jonathan Butcher, who is a senior policy analyst at the Center for Education Policy at the Institute for Family, Community and Opportunity. We'll talk about the president's call for free speech on college campuses and threatening an executive order withdrawing funding in the absence of free speech. We'll also talk with Jim Campbell, senior counsel with Alliance Defending Freedom, where he's the director of the Center for Cultural Engagement and Scholarship. There's been a new turn of events in the Masterpiece Cake Shop a case involving the Colorado Civil Rights Commission will bring you up to date. These events unfolding earlier today. First, we'll take a look at some of the day's headlines. Um, Democrats have launched a new wide-ranging probe into the president. House uh, Democrats on Monday opened a huge new avenue in their investigation into the president with the chairman of the Judiciary Committee firing off document requests to dozens of figures from the president's administration, family, and business. Chairman Jerry Nadler, a Democrat out of New York, said yesterday the committee served document requests to 81 agencies, entities, and individuals as part of a new probe into alleged obstruction of justice, public corruption, and other abuses of power by President Trump, end quote. Nadler said the investigations were necessary to make sure the Trump presidency isn't a dictatorship. In addition to the White House, Nadler is also seeking information from Trump family members like Donald Trump Jr., Eric Trump, and Jared Kushner, from uh, former administration figures like former Chief of Staff Reince Priebus, former National Security Advisor Mike Flynn, former Attorney General Jeff Sessions, and former spokeswoman Hope Hicks, and from Trump campaign figures like Brad Parscale, and Corey Lewandowski. It's going to be a very busy two years. In addition, uh, Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff, Foreign Affairs Committee Chairman Elliot Engel, and Oversight Committee Chairman Elijah Cummings on Monday formally demanded interviews with any translators who witnessed uh, President Trump's communications with Russian President Vladimir Putin since Inauguration Day, a request that comes as part of a sweeping series of inquiries virtually certain to be met with legal pushback by the White House. The only good news Trump received on the investigation front was that Attorney General William Barr will not recuse himself from the Russian probe. And AOC, or Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, chief of staff, is under investigation, according to uh, the New York Times. Um, uh, Sakit Chakrabarty, the progressive firebrand's multimillionaire uh, chief of staff, apparently violated campaign finance law by working to funnel nearly a million dollars in contributions from political action committees. Uh, that he established to private companies that he also controlled, according to um, a complaint filed with the Federal Elections Commission and obtained uh, by media. Amid the allegations, a former FEC commissioner late Monday suggested in an interview with the Daily Caller News Foundation that Ocasio-Cortez and her team could be facing major fines and potentially even jail time if they were knowingly and willingly violating the law by hiding their control of the the, uh, Justice Democrats' political action committee. Uh, even as the PAC may have effectively supported her 2018 congressional primary campaign in excess of normal contribution limits. And apparently there will not be a Trump-Clinton rematch in 2020. Hillary Clinton, the 2016 Democratic presidential candidate, said in an interview to, on Monday rather, that she has ruled out a bid for the 2020 presidential election. 
The former first lady and secretary of state told News 12 Westchester that she will not be running for president next year. I'm not running, but I am going to keep on working and speaking and standing up for what I believe. Clinton told the station in the first local television interview since the midterm elections. She also said she is not going anywhere. I'm not sure where one would have thought she was going. But anyway, um, Michael Cohen is not being used as a witness by Southern District of New York. We've learned he's not being used as a witness by Mueller. Yet Congress thinks he's good enough not only to use as a witness, but kick off the case against President Trump. That's a quote from former U.S. Representative Trey Gowdy. U.S. authorities detained more than 70,000 immigrants, uh, migrants rather, last month, according to preliminary figures, up from 58,000 in January. The majority were Central American parents with children who arrived again in unprecedented numbers. During a month when the border debate was um, dominated by the fight over the president's push for a wall, unauthorized migration in fiscal 2019 is on pace to reach its highest level in a decade. Department of Homeland Security officials say they expect the influx to swell in March and April, months that historically see large increases in illegal crossings as U.S. seasonal labor demand rises. The number of migrants uh, taken into custody last year jumped 39 percent from February to March, and a similar increase this month would push levels to 100,000 detentions or more. Fortunately, there is no crisis on the border. California Attorney General Xavier Bacara, he filed a lawsuit Monday seeking to block the Trump administration's new policy that could strip millions of dollars from Planned Parenthood and other abortion providers. California became the first state to sue over the policy, arguing that the rule would interfere with the practice of medicine, hmm, abortion as medicine, and result in many providers going out of business. Oregon Attorney General Ellen Rosenblum separately announced that she would lead the 20 states and the District of Columbia in filing the national lawsuit against the rule on Tuesday. Of course, that would be today. The nation's top manufacturers have for the ninth consecutive quarter given the Trump economy a thumbs up, setting record industry optimism of the economy and predicting positive growth unseen during the previous administration. The National Association of Manufacturers said big and small companies are overwhelmingly optimistic about the future growth. In fact, the past nine quarters of um, uh, quarters rather have seen record optimism with the average of 91.8% of manufacturers positive about their own firm compared to an average of 68.6% during the last two years of the previous administration. And the war on women, well, in an effort to address wage equity among women and members of minority groups, we'll talk more about this later, Google studied its own practices as it does every year. But the results showed the company was underpaying more men than women for doing similar jobs in software engineering. An interesting and unexpected twist. The National Security Agency has quietly shut down a system that analyzes logs of Americans' domestic calls and texts, according to a senior Republican congressional aide, halting a program that's touched off disputes about privacy and the rule of law since 9-11 attacks. The agency has not used the system in months, and the Trump administration might not ask Congress to renew its legal authority. Congress ended and replaced the program disclosed uh, by Edward Snowden with the USA Freedom Act in 2015, which will expire in December. Security and privacy advocates have been gearing up for a legislative battle over whether to extend or revise the program and with what changes, if any, should occur. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll take a quick break. Later this hour, we'll talk with Dr. Clarence Schuler, co-author, along with Gary Chapman. Dr. Gary Chapman, choose greatness, 11 wise decisions that brave young men make. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
19 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later this hour, Clarence Schuler, co-author of Choose Greatness, 11 Wise Decisions That Brave Young Men Make. Well, measles is spreading from New York to Texas to Washington State in the worst outbreak in years. But some state lawmakers want to take the vaccination debate in the opposite direction, loosening rules covering whether kids get inoculated. Political reports that in Oregon, state lawmakers will consider the so-called transparency bill favored by the vaccine hesitant. New York is simultaneously considering eliminating and expanding exemptions that allow parents to opt out. One bill in Texas would prohibit the state from even tracking exemptions. The push to loosen the rules is occurring even as the U.S. has experienced more than 160 measles cases in 10 states since January 1. Meanwhile, NBC News says another study finds no link between autism and measles, mumps and rubella vaccine. Russian President Vladimir Putin on Monday officially suspended his country's obligations under the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty in response to the Trump administration's withdrawal from the pact last month. Putin said Russia's participation in the 1987 treaty, which was signed by Ronald Reagan and Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev, will end until the United States ends its violations of the treaty or until it terminates. Last month, the administration announced that the agreement would be terminated in six months unless Russia stopped violating it. A federal judge struck down a request on Monday to expedite the case of a woman who's begging to return to America after leaving years ago to join ISIS. At a hearing on Monday at the U.S. District Court in the District of Columbia, Hoda Muthana's attorney, Charles Swift, argued that her proceedings should be sped up because Muthana is facing danger at a refugee camp in Syria where she currently is residing with her 18-month-old son. But lawyers for the government of Muthana's, say Muthana's case is a... Um, a chain of speculation since it's not clear what the conditions at the camp actually are. The sentiment agreed upon by Judge Reggie Walton. There will be no expedited case. And Hillsdale College Associate Professor Charles Steele says most greenhouse gas emissions in the future will come from China and other developing countries that have no intention of restricting their economies with green socialism. Climate socialism will Venezuelaize America if we adopt it. Now, on this day in 1963, country music performance Patsy Cline, Cowboy Copas, and Hawkshaw Hawkins die in a crash of their plane, a Piper uh, Comanche near Camden, Tennessee, along with pilot Randy Hughes. And on this day in 1955, Elvis Presley makes his television debut on Louisiana Hayride, carried by KSLA-TV in Shreveport. And on this date, way back in 1868, the impeachment trial of President Andrew Johnson begins in the U.S. Senate with Chief Justice Salmon Chase presiding. Johnson, the first U.S. president to be impeached, is accused of high crimes and misdemeanors stemming from his attempt to fire Secretary of War Edwin M. Stanton and would be acquitted. Oregon Senator Jeff Merkley announced uh, today, this morning, that he won't run for president in 2020, saying he'll have the biggest impact in the Senate. In the newly released video, the senator said, we are in a battle for the soul of our nation and we have to win. Over the last year, I've weighed whether I can contribute more to the battle by running for president or by running for re-election to the Senate. However, the senator said in order to win these battles, the country needs strong leadership in the Oval Office as well as the Senate. Today, I'm announcing that I am not running for president, Merkley said in the video. Going on to say, I believe there are Democrats now in the presidential race who are speaking to the importance of tackling the big challenges we face. And while um, Merkley said he won't be running for president, he did ask Oregonians to reelect him to the Senate so he can help elect the presidents, senator and other leaders who will live and breathe the fight, even um, or especially when that means standing up to very powerful opponents. By the way, Michael Bloomberg also announced today 
that he will not be seeking uh, the Democrat Party nominee nomination rather. Well, the House Judiciary Committee, under its new Democratic leadership on Monday, issued uh, 81 document requests as part of a multifaceted investigation into the president's. They're not waiting for Mueller. He was uh, all the rage just a short time ago. Now the speculation is, well, there's not going to be much in the report. So the focus is on these uh, new investigations that will no doubt take us right up to and through the 2020 election. The request went to, to some familiar individuals and entities as the Democratic majority laid out a game plan we made Reference to a few moments ago, House Democrats are drafting a resolution condemning anti-Semitism and plan to introduce it on the floor later this week in the wake of controversial comments made once again by freshman representative Ilhan Omar out of Minnesota. Now That uh, resolution, as of now, does not contain her name. She's not specifically mentioned. While it's not clear whether the resolution will specifically condemn her when it's finally uh, when it's finalized, uh, her remarks, a senior House Democrat aide said that. Um, a draft of the resolution was um, worked on over the weekend by the staff of, for House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, along with those of Representative Stine Hoyer, uh, Elliot Engel, Jerry Nadler, and Ted Deutsch. Despite only being in Congress since January, Omar has been the center of controversy over numerous remarks she's made that have been labeled anti-Semitic. I want to talk about the political influence in this country that says it is okay for people to push for for allegiance to a foreign country, Omar said in a reference to Israel. I want to ask why it's okay for me to talk about the influence of the NRA, the fossil fuel industries, or big pharma, and not talk about the powerful lobbying movement that is influencing policy. End quote. Well, amid widespread criticism from a number of Omar's congressional colleagues, the freshman lawmaker chose to double down on her stance, saying, I have not mischaracterized our relationship with Israel. I have questioned it. And that has been clear from my uh, from my end. She tweeted, I am told every day that I am anti-American if I am not pro-Israel. I find that to be problematic and I am not alone. I just happen to be willing to speak up. Uh, on it and open myself to attacks. Well, Engel, the chair of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, said on Friday that it was unacceptable and deeply offensive to call into question the loyalty of fellow American citizens because of their political views, including support for U.S.-Israel relations. The senior Democratic aide uh, told Fox News that while the text of the resolution is not final, lawmakers plan to present it on Wednesday. The aide added that the resolution was drafted well before the Anti-Defamation League sent a letter to Pelosi requesting a resolution and that the ADL was aware of the resolution before they sent the letter. And New York Representative for uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez on Tuesday denied violating campaign finance law after a conservative government watchdog filed a complaint with the Federal Election Commission, accusing the Democratic lawmaker and her chief of staff of being part of an off-the-books operation to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on candidates last year. There is no violation, Ocasio-Cortez exclusively told Fox News after landing Tuesday at Ronald Reagan National Airport. Asked if the complaint shows she was connected to dark money during the campaign, Ocasio-Cortez replied, no, repeating herself, no. Well, the complaint was drafted by the Virginia-based National Legal and Policy Center. It accuses Ocasio-Cortez and her chief of staff of funneling nearly a million dollars in contributions from political action committees established by her chief of staff to private companies that he also controls. The funds, the NLPC writes, uh, were likely spent on campaign events for Ocasio-Cortez and other far-left Democratic candidates favored by 
uh, the chief of staff who made his fortune in Silicon Valley and previously worked on Bernie Sanders 2016 presidential campaign. But no precise accounting for the expenses is available. And the complaint asked the FC, FEC rather to conduct an investigation into the matter immediately. Well, uh, Mr. Chark Barty, uh, the chief of staff, did not return a request for comment, but he did defend the uh, a setup on Twitter saying we are doing something totally new, which meant a new setup. So we were transparent about it from the start. A separate explanation posted by Justice um, Democrats, one of the political action committees last year, cast the arrangement as above board. The only way to do work for multiple candidates legally at this scale is to create an LLC and act as a vendor, uh, the group said. Well, the investigation will move forward. Allegations of mishandling the funds has been denied by the candidate and her chief of staff. We'll certainly follow that story as it develops. Now, coming up in just a couple of minutes, we're going to talk with uh, Charles or excuse me, Clarence Schuler. He is a Ph.D. and the co-author with Gary Chapman of Choose Greatness, 11 Wise Decisions That Brave Young Men Make. Now, the interesting thing about this um, co-authorship is these two men came together in the um, form of a mentor and mentee. Uh, Clarence Schuler, before he was a Ph.D., was mentored by Gary Chapman. And the two of them write from the perspective of having been both. They, uh, he was a mentor to Clarence Schuler, Gary Chapman, and Clarence um, uh, Schuler is now a mentor to many others. Uh, this is a very small book, but it provides insight to young men to help them make some important decisions at a stage in life that will help to chart the course of the relationships and the the future decision-making moving forward. So we're going to talk with him about that in just a few moments. Also, later in the second hour of today's program, we'll talk with Jonathan Butcher, Senior Policy Analyst for the Center for Education Policy. We'll talk about the president's call for free speech on college campuses and threatening to withdraw funds to uh, campuses that uh, decline to permit it. We'll also talk with Jim Campbell, Senior Counsel with Alliance Defending Freedom, where he's the Director of the Center for Cultural Engagement and Scholarship. We're going to talk about the reversal of the Colorado Civil Rights Commission in their pursuit of Masterpiece Cape Shop owner Jack Phillips. Uh, that just developed earlier today. So as far as we can tell, uh, that conflict, the pursuit of him legally is over. The lawsuit against the commission has been dropped by ADF and Jack Phillips. So this is a very um, significant develop, uh, development today. Will this resolve the issue for artists moving forward? Not altogether clear, but we'll explain when he joins me later in the 5 o'clock hour. Choose Greatness up next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 35 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My next guest and his co-author asked the question, do you want to live a great life? Well, most young men would say... Well, yeah, but living a great life doesn't just happen by chance. It's the result of making wise decisions every day on things like how you use technology or how technology uses you, what kind of friendships you want to build and how much work you're willing to do. And good decision making starts when you're young. Well, says Gary Chapman, co-author with uh, Clarence Schuler of Choose Greatness, 11 Wise Decisions That Brave Young Men Make. As we reflect upon the hundreds of individuals that we have counseled through the years, we're both convinced that the decisions that are made between the ages of 11 and 16 will largely determine the quality of life that a man experiences after he becomes 
an adult. Well, in their book, Choose Greatness, Chapman and Schuler outline 11 key decisions that young men face during the teen years, such as education, technology, friendships, and more. Uh, they show how they handle those decisions in their own lives, what they learned, and what they've learned from others, and then guide young men to make these decisions themselves. Well, my guest is the co-author, Dr. Uh, Clarence Schuler is the president and CEO of BLR, Building Lasting Relationships. He's a counselor, speaker, author, and of several books, including Winning the Race to Unity, is racial reconciliation really working? Keeping your wife your best friend and single and free to be me. He and his wife, Brenda, live in Colorado Springs and have three adult daughters. He joins us today to talk about the book that he co-authored with Dr. Gary Chapman, Choose Greatness, 11 Wise Decisions That Brave Young Men Make. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, Georgine, thanks so much for having me. I'm glad to be with you. Well, we're happy to have you. Now, you and Gary Chapman began uh, an interesting relationship. The two of you met when you were a teenager, and Gary Chapman was a youth leader. Can you describe for us a bit of, of uh, your relationship together? <laughs> well, I met him when I was uh, 14 uh, in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, about 100 years ago, back in 1968. <laughs> and uh, I went to an all-black school. My buddy, was Russell, was going to integrate school. And Russell was a ladies' man, so some of the girls invited him to their church, which was kind of a big deal. It was an all-white church. And so uh, Russell was pretty short. He was only 4 feet 7 or 4 feet 8, and I was his bodyguard because I was 4 feet 9. And so uh, <laughs> I went to protect him, and we were sure enough we were the only two black kids there. And Gary Chapman came on a basketball court because in, in North Carolina you have basketball, tobacco, and Baptist, primitive order. And... Uh, <laughs> Basketball is my God before I became a believer. And so I watched Gary for two years, and I realized he had something in his life that I needed, which was Jesus Christ. And uh, so when I was 16 years old, he introduced me to Jesus Christ. And a year later, he started discipling me. And then um, after my dad died when I was 20, for all practical purposes, he became my dad. And mm-hmm. uh, and then since then, he's been like a you know, premarital counseling, best man at my wedding. Even I think the groom should be the best man. But uh, and, uh, and then the other thing was uh, he's been a grandfather to my kids. So uh, our relationship has you know, it's been become amazing. Mm. So, uh, so I really enjoy it. Yeah, very, very sweet. Now, what are some of the biggest issues that teenage boys face today? And are they dramatically different from what you faced, for example, when you were a teenage boy? Um, well, the technology won't be the biggest difference uh, that I think. Well, there are several, I guess. But the technology one's a big one. I, I think technology is good when it's used correctly, mm-hmm. like for just giving information uh, in regards to where you're going to be or making a meeting and stuff like that or asking questions. But I think when it comes to a, an emotional issue where you're really struggling with something, you're angry or hurt, and I think when we communicate that through social media, we, we often tend to communicate in a way that we wouldn't if it was face-to-face or even by yes. phone. And so we try and help young men be aware of that. I, I think the other thing um, with technology has created a problem in regards to the whole issue of pornography. And so we, we talk to guys about that, and then, and then specifically uh, sexting, and where sometimes couples think that they're doing it and they're intimate by showing each other themselves and, and you know nude, and they think that they're the only ones going to see those pictures, which is not true. And then the other problem with that is that that picture is going to be there forever. And what we're also finding is that in some states, sexting is a felony. So, uh, so there are consequences to that. And so we're trying to help young men who are all, always in the now to think long-term yeah. consequences from decisions we make today. Mm, that's such an important 
um, element. I think technology has brought that message home perhaps more than anything else, that decisions and choices that we make now have long-term consequences. Well, let's talk about some of the wise decisions that you chose to focus on in the book. The subtitle is 11 Wise Decisions That Brave Young Men Make. Let's talk about a few of them. Well, we talk about wisdom from your parents. And, you know, the older I got, the smarter my dad became. And, (laughs) and, uh, and, and what we don't often realize, you know, we, we think our parents don't know what's going on, but we don't. We throw away the fact that they've been there before we have. And so we encourage uh, young men to really trust their parents or talk to their parents and try to have a good relationship. If you're a child of a single parent or especially a single mom, we even talk to single moms and with you know how to find a, a good man, a, a godly man, to mentor their child, which unfortunately today would also include. Um, a background check, and, yeah. uh, and and a good place to start would be a church. But, you know, I think that's important as well. So we think that that wisdom that young men get from men, uh, the security they get from, from men, uh, it can be life-changing. It's, and it's so critical as they develop their uh, identity, you know, in just a lot of different ways. Now, looking back on your own life, how have you seen um, some of the decisions, the wise decisions you made as a young man impacting your life as a mature man? Well, I, I think one of the biggest ones that for me was, was not doing drugs. Um, uh, grew up, I was in a junior high school, uh, junior high school back then as opposed to middle school, middle school, which was 7th to ninth grade junior high. And some of my friends were selected to go to prep schools. And uh, they, I think they chose the top seven guys. I think I was number nine academically. And when the guys came back, you know, we, they were kind of gods to us. We loved them and everything like that. But they started talking about drugs. And um, and when they shared some of the experiences, I kind of realized, I said, you know, I don't want to do that. I don't want to have somebody else or something control my mind. And so I still love my homeboys, but I, I decided I didn't want to do drugs, which also helped me become my own person and a leader for, for myself and other people. And so that was, that was a really big deal because some of my peers who have done drugs, when I see them today, they look a whole lot older, and they're struggling with health issues, and they're all related to drugs. Yeah, it's difficult as a young person to have that kind of long view, but by encouraging them, as you do in the book, Choose Greatness, to think about those long-term consequences, they can be spared so many painful um, events in life. Now, you advocate um, very strongly in your book that every young man needs to have either a father or a substitute in his life. What encouragement do you have for the single moms who, who want to, to do that? You mentioned, you know, oftentimes today a background check needs to be a part of, of that. But where does she go? How does she find uh, someone that can fill that role? Well, if she's, uh, if, she's going, if she's going to church, and hopefully a good Bible-teaching church, uh, I, would, I would go ask my pastor, i said, what are some godly guys here that you feel would be a good mentor for my son? And, and having a good mentor for their son or father substitute, we really, it, it's really important we stress that they can give them access to mom. And so that's important. And then if they don't go through a church, we think uh, big brothers. Uh, and so there are different organizations out there where you can find someone, but again, no matter who it is, just because where things are today, you have to do a background check to protect your child in, in that process. But, but So we think it's encouraging to mom. We think also if they find a, a good mentor, it takes some of the pressure off mom, They're trying to be with mom and dad, so, mm-hmm. uh, which can cause a problem with the young man um, down the road. Now, as you mentioned, uh, you had a mentor in life, and particularly when your father died, 
um, stepping up and filling that role as well. What are some of the life lessons that you learned from having mentors? Well, uh, I think the biggest thing I've learned, because I've had several, um, is watching how, how important it is how they treat their wives. That was huge for me uh, before I became a Christian, uh, especially my dad. Even though my dad was great with my mom, but even as a young man, because I was 20, continue to see that and see how they treated them and the respect they showed uh, their wives and other women in their life. That was, that was a big deal for me. Um, I think the whole idea of, of, of making choices was big. Uh, they, they often taught me about their, you have choices, their decisions, and then there are consequences from those decisions. And I also made some bad ones, but fortunately they stuck by me, but I had to still deal with the consequences of my decisions. And so those were some of the good things of having mentors, someone to talk to who um, loved you but loved you enough to tell you what you may not want to hear but need to hear. Yeah, yeah, to speak the truth. Now we're going to take a quick break. We'll continue our conversation. Again, we're talking with Dr. Clarence Schuler. He co-authored along with Gary Chapman, Choose Greatness, 11 Wise Decisions That Brave Young Men Make. We'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. And we are back 50 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Dr. Clarence Schuler, who, along with Dr. Gary Chapman, co-authored Choose Greatness, 11 Wise Decisions That Brave Young Men Make. These are decisions like choosing to be successful and work hard, uh, choosing to respect girls and women, choosing to be sexually responsible, choosing to live longer and happier, avoiding tobacco and marijuana, choosing to invest time in helping others, and choosing to discover the truth about God, some of the 11 wise decisions that brave young men make. As we mentioned at the top of the uh, hour, Clarence Schuler was uh, mentored by Gary Chapman when Clarence was just 14, and Gary Chapman was a youth uh, pastor, and that relationship has continued over the years, and um, Dr. Schuler has become a wise man, mentor, and teacher to others uh, as a consequence. Uh, how can young men um, learn to be responsible in their use of technology? That's perhaps one of the greatest challenges today. Sometimes you're not pursuing technology that is not in your best interest. It sort of pursues you. How do you advise young men to manage technology well? Well, the first thing I would tell them is just that technology is a great tool. It's great for uh, making appointments. It's great for staying in touch with people. Uh, it's great for you know, staying in contact with your parents in regards to what's going on or you, if you have a single parent. Uh, but I think when you, you're trying uh, to uh, communicate really emotional, hard-felt issues, that you need to um, do that face-to-face or by phone. Because when you do it by phone, at least you hear the voice inflection. Mm-hmm. Uh, when, you, we, when you do it through social media, it's hard to interpret the words so that can be misinterpreted. Because sometimes our emotions, we only see certain things. We could miss things. Uh, so I think it's really you have to be careful in doing that. And that way it, it, it lessens your chance of making mistakes with people in regards to technology. So those are things I think are really, really important. And also I think it's important not to bully people through social media yeah. as well. One of the decisions you focus on is respecting girls and women, which has really been pushed to the forefront with a Me Too culture. What are some of the ways you teach boys to respect females? Well, you know, uh, most boys or young men uh, have a female in their life. You know, that their mom, a lot of them have sisters or aunts or grandmothers. And, and so I just try and tell them, you know, if, because so often we're in the now and not thinking long term. Mm-hmm. But we just raise the question, how would you want somebody to treat the females in your in your life, females you love and care about and respect, you want to do that, so you want to do the same thing too 
uh, those females that come into your life. And, uh, you know, a lot of times you reap what you sow as well. So we, we tell them that's really important to do that. And for young guys who care about girls, uh, that can be very attractive how you treat them. I'm a, I'm a Southern boy, so it doesn't work with everybody, but, you know, opening doors and treating women like like. I think, you know, I was taught they should be treated is really important. Mm-hmm. Not that every woman wants a guy to open a door for her, but just showing that respect, which doesn't mean she's weak or less than, just saying it's just, a, a, I think, a great thing. Yeah, a way of honoring her. You, right. You also encourage boys to choose to live longer and happier. I think everyone, if asked, would you like to live long and be happy? Absolutely. <laughs> but you provide some specific ways to do that, and they're, they're very timely as well. Well, you know, I think we, we touched on it earlier, but what you put into your body can really impact that. Uh, so, so we really talk about drugs, you know, uh, you know, alcohol, you know, smoking, all those things uh, may be legal to do, but they're not always for your best interest. And, and we just did a lot of research on it, just secular research on it and how it impacts the body and how it can actually uh, short your li- uh, cut your life short. And so, you, and you also have the best quality of life. I mean, some of my friends that I love dearly were involved with, you know, uh, some just were involved with marijuana, but it's impacting them and their eyesight and all kinds of things. And when they say they've talked to the doctors, they trace it back to the drugs that they were using. So even though it was supposed to be supposed to be a harmless drug, which really none of them are harmless, uh, it take a toll. So. You also encourage boys to develop friendships across racial and cultural lines, which may be a challenge for some boys, depending on their environment. But what are some ways that boys can do that practically, and why is it important? Well, one of the easiest ways is uh, through sports. Uh, That seems to build a bond, and I talk about it a little bit in the book. But for guys who aren't athletic or have no desire for athletics, uh, it can be clubs at school that they can be a part of. But we think it's important that you build relationships you know, cross-culturally because as a history major, uh, it teaches us that the more you learn about other cultures, you really learn more about yourself. That's, that's really important. And, and if you're a Christian young man, the Bible really teaches that, the whole idea of interdependency, that we all need each other, that we're better together than we are apart. And, and I think it helps us to, to treat each other as equals when we understand that. And it helps us break down what I think racism, which is such a big issue in our country, and uh, unfortunately, always be unless you start doing it one person at a time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, you encourage boys to invest their lives in helping others. What are some of the practical ways that boys, and we're talking, what, 11 to 16, uh, can get involved in this kind of service? Well, actually, you know, I, I, I've been encouraging Moody because they, they really want to target 11 to 16-year-olds, but the reality of, of it is this book is helping guys much older. You know, I, so would I, I, you, I would I, agree. I would agree. I mean, we're, some of my guys I'm accountable to, they say their they're college kids' sons are grabbing the book and le- reading and loving it. And then a couple I was working with, they said their nephew came in, 29 years old, said, this is so helpful. And so I've been trying to tell Moody you know, that they're great at publishing books, but I say I'm out here in the field <laughs> doing this work. And I said, Let, let's expand this thing because, uh, you know, as long as you're breathing, it's not too late. And, and so a lot of guys... You know, parenting is taking a hit, and so a lot of guys aren't getting this stuff at home. And uh, from my non-Christian friends, uh, fathers, they say they're really enjoying the book because it helps them build a bridge to their son, and it Gary and I serve as a third voice for them. And also with stepdads, they're finding this is a way to get close to their to their stepson. So um, we just encourage them to look longer, but these principles are really life-changing and not just limited to being 16 years old. Yeah, I would agree. So let's talk about how how they can uh, practically uh, get involved in the. No, I appreciate you're saying that because when I was as I was reading and it said the the age range, I thought 
In fact, I was thinking about giving the book to someone much older, but I thought that that was very limiting as well. So I appreciate your commenting on it. Well, uh, I, I can't take credit for the invested in others. Uh, <laughs> one, I learned from Gary because he did that in me, and as he told me about discipleship, which is about spiritual reproduction. But my parents really got me started. They would have me cut the grass for senior citizens who could no longer do that. And what my parents also did, which I didn't appreciate then, but <laughs> initially, they wouldn't let the senior citizens pay me for it, which was, I didn't think was not cool. But what would happen was the senior citizens would have me come in uh, or, or other people who were handicapped would have me come into her home, and they would, like, maybe give me a lemonade or something or feed me. But then they would teach me about life, and it was so, so helpful. And so now I have mentors in their 90s and stuff like that in their 80s who still invest in me and teach me things, and they have so much wisdom. And so we learn to pass it on to other people. So investing in other people, you will always get more back when you give to other people. But when you take or try and hold on, you can't, keep up, you can't hold it. You can't keep it. Now, what kinds of questions can boys ask themselves when they're faced with difficult decisions? Well, one thing that we, you and I have talked about throughout this whole uh, program is the theme of long-term consequences. So here's a question you should ask. What are the long-term consequences of my actions? If I do this right now, what, what's going to happen? Then the other question is, if you even know what's going to happen, you have to ask question, this question, do I want to pay the cost? Uh, and then next, who else will my decision impact either positively or negatively, if I do this. And then the last one, if they're a Christ follower, is will God get the most glory out of this? Or will this bring dishonor to God's name? So I think those are some key questions that a young man needs to make, ask before he makes a decision. Well, the book is titled Choose Greatness, 11 Wise Decisions That Brave Young Men Make. It's an excellent book. It's easy to read. A young man can pick it up, go through it, talk with some adults about it, and I think it can make a real difference in life. Dr. Schuler, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Well, Georgie, thanks so much for having me. I've, I've enjoyed being part of the show. Thanks so much. Thank you. Again, the book, Choose Greatness, it is published by Northfield and available in bookstores. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. Later in the 5 o'clock hour, we'll talk with Jonathan Butcher. We'll talk about uh, free speech on college campuses and Jim Campbell about, a well, a reversal in the Masterpiece Cake case in Colorado. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back six minutes after five o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Liberty Coin and Currency. By the way, we'll be talking with Jonathan Butler in the next segment. We'll be talking about the president's call for free speech on college campuses and in the absence of it or regard for it or allowing it, uh, withdrawing federal funds. We'll also talk with Jim Campbell Senior Counsel with Alliance Defending Freedom, the latest on the Masterpiece Cake Shop controversy in Colorado. Looks like it may be resolved, and we'll explain what happened. Well, whether it's the result of political pressure or wanting to stay ahead of progressive trends, a number of larger companies are conducting what they're uh, referred to, referring to as internal audits to investigate whether they could be accused of having a so-called pay gap between men and women. Now, I suppose it's a, you know, it's a good thing to make sure that you're paying your employees fairly. Now, Google conducts this audit every year, and this year they produced a pretty surprising result. According to the New York Times, Google's analysts um, found that more men than women were being underpaid. As a result, Google has, um, uh, will award $9.7 million out of a compensation fund, the majority of it going to men. The fund was established to remedy compensation gaps revealed by the annual study. Now, the study results conflict sharply with analysis 
that was conducted by the Labor Department, which is currently investigating the tech giant. Janet Harold, regional solicitor for the Labor Department, said her department's analysis at this point indicates discrimination against women and that this discrimination is quite extreme. Now, how could the results be so dramatically different? Was there a presumption that the Labor Department went into this project with that only Google's uh, internal audit revealed. Well, the Labor Department is also suing Google to force it to hand over data that Google believes reveals confidential information and violated employees' privacy. Google is also facing an employee-led effort that claims the company is significantly underpaying women compared to men. So who's right in the middle of all of this? Google, its employees, or the government? Big question marks there. Well, it depends on how you measure pay between groups. And that's part of the problem with these broad statements about who's getting what from whom and in what percentage. Across the country, broad-based pay comparisons show that women make 20 cents less on the dollar than men. But after accounting for important factors like one's education, hours spent at work, occupation, experience, the gap drops to between three to five cents. And even that doesn't account for harder to measure factors. The government has little insight into the day-to-day operations of Google and They have to rely on limited or abstract data, such as job title, pay, gender, and race. This means government reports are less likely to paint an accurate picture of employee pay according to work performed. And how about the employee-led effort? It only included self-reported pay data from 2% of Google's global workforce and was divided across six broad pay levels. Well, the government analysis, clearly, as well as the employee-led effort, are lacking. They essentially assumed that all employees with the same job title performance, um, I should say job title, perform identical jobs when, in fact, that wasn't the case. Google is not a 1950 assembly line where all employees clock in at 9, produce 50 widgets, and then clock out at 5 p.m. It's a diverse and complex company in which job titles may say little about the work an employee actually does. And while the government and employee-led studies are limited, Google itself performed a more detailed analysis. After all, the company knows a thing or two about analyzing data. Well, Google presumably included important factors in its analysis that offer... Uh, that affect, rather, pay, such as years of experience, education, hours, some measure of performance. Even so, this didn't create a true apples-to-apples comparison, nor could it. In today's um, well day and age, with more flexible job schedules, highly diversified job functions, even within a given title and broad compensation packages, very few jobs are truly identical. The problem with top-down government controls that attempt to equalize pay across gender or race is that those policies could end up hurting the people they intend to help. Now, for starters, policies like the Paycheck Fairness Act threaten to take away decades of gains women have made in the labor market by eliminating more flexible arrangements and instead imposing one-size-fits-all jobs, schedules, and compensation packages that may not actually fit women's needs or desires. Also, expensive lawsuits encouraged by some legislation would likely cause employers to discriminate against women in the hiring process, protecting themselves against potential gender-based discrimination lawsuits. At the end of the day, most workers, both men and women, want to be paid based on what they produce. That's not possible with government-imposed pay scales. Instead of telling companies how much to pay their workers and limiting the types of jobs available to women, and men for that matter, lawmakers should work to reduce barriers and burdens for job creators and support women in the choices they make for themselves. So a rather interesting illustration of the challenge with Google, the government, and a very small percentage of Google's employees. Well, a British former Olympic swimmer, Sharon Davis, said on Monday that she knows quite a lot of female athletes who are afraid to publicly share their concerns about biological males who identify as transgender women competing in women's sports. 
She told Sky News that she's had many conversations with female athletes who are afraid to speak out, especially people who are competing at the moment. They're worried that their governing bodies will frown on it. They're worried that their sponsors will think it's not PC and that they're not allowed to do this. Uh, she won a silver medal in the 1980 Summer Olympics. She went on to say, that's what I think is wrong with this debate. Why should we label someone who has a different view as you as transphobic? We know um, Navratilova was recently booted out of uh, the LGBT community for saying it's ridiculous to consider men who uh, are competing against women uh, and not acknowledge the advantage that they have. Well, Rachel McKinnon, a transgender cyclist who won a woman's world championship in October, has attacked Davies as a transphobe and accused her of sharing hate speech. So again, having a reasonable conversation about real issues is not allowed. Davies emphasized that her position on transgender athletes wasn't about bigotry, but about the right of women to have a level playing field. A top-ranked runner in NC2A women's track is dominating the competition and setting records one year after competing as a man at the same level. Two male runners are similarly dominating girls' high school track in Connecticut. High school juniors Terry Miller and Andrea Yearwood took first and second place in the state open indoor track championships in February and are among the fastest runners in the country in the girls' 55-meter dash. Terry Miller, a male athlete who identifies as a transgender girl, is dominating girls' track and field in Connecticut. One of their competitors, high school junior Selena Soule, told the AP it was unfair to force female runners to compete against male runners. We're talking biology, not um, one's self-identification. We all know the outcome of the race before it even starts. It's demoralizing, Soul says. I fully support and I'm happy for these athletes for being true to themselves. They should have the right to express themselves in school. But athletics have always had extra rules to keep the competition fair. And fairness is being trumped by the freedom of an individual to choose to do something that makes that once level playing field less so. Over the second time, doctors appear to have put HIV into sustained remission, as they call it, with a stem cell transplant effectively curing the recipient. Their work, which was published in Nature and will be presented at the annual conference on retroviruses and opportunistic infections in Seattle on Tuesday, may encourage scientists working on new gene therapies based on similar principles and give hope to those living with the infection. The case comes nearly 10 years after Timothy Ray Brown announced that he was the so-called Berlin patient, the first person who was functionally cured of HIV and able to stop taking antro, um, antiviral drugs after an intensive round of chemotherapy and radiation and two bone marrow transplant. The person who received this latest transplant in London has not taken antro, uh, antiviral drugs since September of 2017. He is not identified in the paper, at least not yet. Those of us in the field have been waiting for a second cure via this approach, says Dr. Keith Jerome, one of the leaders of HIV cure research at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center. As long as Timothy Brown was the only one, we'd have always wondered if there's something unique about it. Jerome was not involved in the research published Today, the researchers behind the paper are from an array of British, Spanish, Dutch, Singaporean institutions. The lead author is um, uh, Ravindra Gupta, who is affiliated with the University of Cambridge, Imperial College London and University College London. Again, the paper presented today and they're determining whether or not this uh, is a possible cure for HIV. They're calling it HIV free. Those two who are no longer um, carrying the virus. Up next, we'll talk with Jonathan Butcher, Senior Policy Analyst at the Center for Education Policy at the Institute for Family, Community and Opportunity. We'll talk about the president's declaration at CPAC 
saying he wants to withdraw funds from college and, and universities that suspend free speech on campus. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, President Trump, speaking at the uh, Conservative Political Action uh, Conference, or CPAC, made an announcement on Saturday that he plans to protect free speech on college campuses. The president made his announcement after he invited Hayden Williams, the 26-year-old, who says he was assaulted for his beliefs in mid-February on the campus of University of California, Berkeley, to come on stage and speak briefly alongside him. The president said he will very soon be signing an executive order requiring colleges and universities to support free speech if they want federal funding. Now, this is uh, to combat viewpoint discrimination, campus free speech, uh, uh, code censorship, political correctness, and so on. Well, here to talk with us about that is Jonathan Butcher. He is Senior Policy Analyst at the Center for Education Policy at the Institute for Family, Community, and Opportunity at the Heritage Foundation. Thank you so much for joining us. Great to be with you. Now, let's, so let's start by talking about the incident involving Hayden Williams. He's not a student at the uh, university, but he was on the college campus, and there's video um, that illustrates what happened to him while he was there. Can you start us there and bring us up to the president's comments? Sure. So it's, it's very important that anyone who is lawfully present on a public college campus, especially, um, has the right to protest or demonstrate there. And this should be true for uh, college campuses uh, across the U.S. Mm-hmm. So it's very troubling when, you know, someone who is who is in a public area on a public college campus is uh, prevented from, you know, expressing themselves. And so that's the president and this administration is, has been right now and, and was right before to highlight this issue and um, and and. and you know, let people know, right, that free speech is dying on campuses around the country. So this is an important issue, and it's good that they're highlighting it. Oh, absolutely. It seems like an oxymoron to suggest that on a college or university campus that there are restrictions on the kind of speech that is found acceptable. And so the president wasn't simply addressing this singular incident, but a, a, a what has become sort of an historic practice on college campuses all across the uh, the country. Now, the president announced that he is planning on signing an executive order that would require colleges and universities to support free speech. And many of them already have free speech codes that betray what's actually happening on campus. Uh, but what what authority does the president have in this area and how? Uh, first of all, how likely is it that an executive order can have some real impact in terms of federal funding? So that's a great question. I think this administration, particularly through the Attorney General's office in recent years, has gotten involved in cases protecting free speech and students who have um, had their, their free expression censored on campuses around the country. For example, the, uh, they filed a statement of interest in a case last year against the University of Michigan, where they have these bias response teams, which are kind of anonymous reporting groups that will uh, come down on students when another student reports feeling offended. So, you know, I think, I think actions such as that by, um, you know, the Attorney General, Department of Justice, I think they have been, been in, the right, uh, in the right to do that. It, I think it is important to remember, though, that there is a lot of activity happening at the state level this is really where um, I think the most significant changes are, are going to be happening and have been happening. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, an executive um, order, does, does it have the weight or without uh, approval of Congress to withdraw federal funding from a college or university that receives billions in federal funding? 
Sure. So if we don't have you know any more details really than what the president gave the other day. Um, I, I would say, look, you know, the, the danger with an executive order always is that the next administration can simply, you know, rescind it or go back on it. Um, I think that what's happening in places like Arizona, North Carolina, Georgia, uh, Wisconsin, these are places where state officials, in some cases state lawmakers, in other instances, uh, the u- leadership of the public uh, university system have, have taken steps to adopt policies that protect free speech, allow anyone lawfully present on campus to protest or demonstrate in public areas of campus, and then even consider disciplinary sanctions on individuals, students in particular, who violate the free speech rights of someone else. And that's critical, right? Because then you're getting right to Mm -hmm. those individuals that are shouting down someone else. I think that's really, that's really a key. The president went on to say again at the CPAC conference that we reject oppressive speech codes, censorship, political correctness, and every other attempt by the hard left to stop people from challenging ridiculous and dangerous ideas. These ideas are dangerous. Instead, we believe in free speech, including online and including on campus. Now, it seems so absurd that we are arguing the uh, the validity of the First Amendment and whether or not this is something that we are going to value and cherish. And one would assume that a uh, the college or university campus would be the first place where they would fight vigorously and hard for uh, the freedom to speak. And yet we find ourselves in an occasion where, as you pointed out a moment ago, uh, you have um, groups on campus that are sort of monitoring what's offending um, other members of the uh, of the, the uh, campus community uh, and, and coming down hard on free speech. It just seems so absurd. Maybe it's just that I'm I'm older, but this just seems absurd to me. No, I think it's absurd and should be absurd to anyone and anyone on the right or the left, because I think people on both sides of political debates have been the victims of shoutdowns mm-hmm. from individuals with the ACLU and um, uh, professors who have, you know, professed to be um, on the left and, and support Bernie Sanders. They've been shouted down and chased off campus. Uh, to those on the right, uh, have had the same things happen there. So this is something that really folks on both sides should come together and, and be able to agree on. And like you said, these um, speech codes around the country are very troubling, right? This is These are things that uh, limit where students can speak, how long they can speak. Sometimes they have to get reservations um, or sign up ahead of time to distribute literature or talk about different topics. So these kinds of things happening on public college campuses should be a real concern, especially to the parents of the next generation mm-hmm. of students. Yeah, yeah. Well, the president certainly took advantage of his bully pulpit and to draw this kind of attention uh, to the problem, I think, is useful in and of itself. What the executive <laughs> executive order may or may not do moving forward. Um, I'm I'm looking forward to seeing that. But I think it is important to continue to emphasize what's happening on college campuses, because I think you're right. Lots of parents would be shocked to learn um, what's happening at these institutions. They are paying hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, to send their sons and daughters for education, uh, too. So, uh, again, I'm, I'm grateful the president brought it up. We'll see what happens next. Yep, that's absolutely right. Well, Jonathan, thank you so much for talking with us today. I appreciate it. Great. Thank you. Jonathan Butcher is senior policy analyst at the Center for Education Policy at the Institute for Family, Community and Opportunity, talking about the president's comments at CPAC um, just a couple of days ago in which he made the announcement that he uh, and the vow really to cut funding to colleges that don't protect free speech. Um, I'm not sure to what extent he has the capacity to do that. And certainly with a 
a divided Congress, uh, whether or not they would support that sort of effort. But he does shine a very bright light on a growing problem that isn't limited to college and university campuses, but we're seeing it um, uh, being restricted in ways that uh, is only possible on college and university campuses, and it is very troubling. By the way, I mentioned uh, Hayden Williams, the 26-year-old who was assaulted for his beliefs on the 19th of February on the campus of the University of California, Berkeley. He was invited by the president to join him on stage. We also learned at that time uh, that the bully that uh, the president referred to, the man who punched Williams, um, uh, has in fact been identified and arrested. Uh, Zachary Greenberg, 28 years old, he, he's been charged with assault with a, a deadly weapon and attempting uh, to cause great bodily injury. So Williams, who is uh, not a Berkeley student, he's associated with campus reform. It's a network of student journalists. It's part of the Leadership Institute, a Washington-based conservative group that trains young activists. Um, mentioned that at least the possibility of justice in this case uh, may be done. Um, at the Leadership um, Conference or the Leadership Institute, he said of his work, we are committed to making campuses great again. Williams uh, said it to the P- CPAC crowd at the president's invitation. I thank you so much for bringing me up here to let me speak. It's great that I'm being recognized, but there are so many conservative students across the country who are facing discrimination and harassment and worse if they dare to speak on campus. He went on to say, I'm glad uh, we could bring this to the forefront. I just want to say um, if these socialist progressives had their way, they would put a uh, the, our Constitution through the shredder in a heartbeat. So it's as important now uh, than ever to work at Leadership Institute and campus reform, exposing those abuses to the public. So anyway, the president speaking at CPAC, inviting this young man to join him and the perpetrator in that particular case uh, has now been apprehended. Now, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. When we come back, we are going to uh, uh, talk with uh, my next guest, Jim Campbell. He's senior counsel with Alliance Defending Freedom, where he is the director of the Center for Cultural Engagement and Scholarship. You recall the case Masterpiece Cake Shop. Well, there's been a development. We want to bring you up to date when we return in just a few moments. Again, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Good afternoon. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Now, you might recall back in June of 2017, this is the same day that the U.S. Supreme Court agreed to take up Masterpiece Cake Shop versus Colorado Civil Rights Commission. An attorney asked cake artist Jack Phillips to create a cake designed pink on the inside and blue on the outside, which the attorney said was to celebrate a gender transition from male to female. Now, the attorney knew precisely what she was doing. Phillips declined the request because the custom uh, cake would have expressed messages about sex and gender identity that could conflicted with his religious beliefs. Well, less than a month after the Supreme Court ruled in his favor in that first case, the state surprised him by finding probable cause to believe that Colorado law requires him to create the requested gender transition cake, and it started all over again. Well, as um, as you know, this has been an ongoing conflict going back and forth with the Colorado Civil Rights Commission. Well, today, we learn that overwhelming evidence of government hostility has emerged and there's been a great um, break in the case. Here to talk with us about that is Jim Campbell, senior counsel with Alliance Defending Freedom, where he's the director of the Center for Cultural Engagement and Scholarship. Thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. This has been such a frustrating case for those of us who have been looking on from some distance because it seemed perfectly clear from what the Supreme Court said in the first ruling that the Colorado Civil Rights Uh, commission was out of line. And then for this second case to move forward um, was utterly shocking. What happened today to change all that? 
Well, as you said, the second case moved forward, and in response, rather than sit back and allow the state to continue to turn Jack's life upside down for another six or seven years, um, we decided at Alliance Defending Freedom on Jack's behalf to go into federal court and to sue the state officials that were trying to prosecute Jack. Uh, Throughout that lawsuit, we were able to uncover additional evidence of the state's anti-religious hostility, and today the state decided that it would stop going after Jack, that it would give up that pending state prosecution, and as a result, uh, we were able to dismiss our federal lawsuit against the state, and hopefully this is a sign that the state's going to leave Jack alone and that he can get back to life as he knew it before the state decided to target him. Now, you made reference to ongoing hostility toward uh, Jack because of his uh, Christian beliefs and his desire to live consistent with his core values. Some of these uh, statements that were made by commissioners that sat on the Colorado Civil Rights Commission were just utterly blatant. Can you give us an example so listeners have some idea of how clear it was that there was ongoing hostility uh, toward um, Mr. Phillips? Sure. One, one of the commissioners um, p- made a post on Twitter that referred to Jack as a hater. Um, two of the other commissioners publicly said that they agreed with a former commissioner's comments that the Supreme Court expressly called out and condemned in that first ruling in Jack's favor. And so just to unpack that point a little bit, you had in Jack's first case a commissioner that called religious freedom a despicable piece of rhetoric and compared Jack's attempt to defend his religious freedom to arguments made by slaveholders and Nazis. And then you fast forward to the current commissioners after the Supreme Court's ruling, and two of them said that they agreed with those comments. And so what we have here is a clear pattern of hostility towards religious freedom in general and towards Jack Phillips and his faith in particular. Now, in this um, this legal battle, was this um, uh, information presented to the court? Was it simply presented to them uh, as as evidence that you had evidence against the commission um, that a court would likely rule in your favor regarding or how did this uh, decision by the commission come about? So the the commission um, decided to no longer pursue this claim against Jack. And and to be honest, we don't know exactly why. We don't know why the commission decided. Um, We think it's likely because uh, we were uncovering more and more evidence of this hostility towards faith. Um, But we don't know exactly why the state made the decision it did. Well, it's it's really very interesting. Now, in deciding that they uh, were not going to continue to persecute him, um, there were decisions made about what they were willing to do or not willing to do and what you all had agreed to do. So in this settlement, what happens next? And what about attorney's fees? So um, the whole reason why we filed this federal lawsuit was to get the state to stop prosecuting Jack. Mm-hmm. And so once the state made it clear to us that they were no longer going to prosecute Jack, then the whole reason why we filed this lawsuit um, had gone away, and we had achieved the, the primary goal that we set out to attain. So we agreed to dismiss our federal lawsuit. They agreed to dismiss their state prosecution of Jack. And at this point, the parties will go their separate ways, and we're hopeful that the court, that the state of Colorado will um, leave Jack alone and that, that it won't go along with obvious efforts to harass Jack and to, to uh, ruin his business, but that they'll leave him free to live and work consistent with his religious Given the fact that the Colorado Commission decided we're not going to pursue this case, given the fact the Supreme Court 
um, ruled on the hostility of uh, the state in dealing with Jack Phillips. Is this issue resolved or is this just the the first round in what will be a long drawn out series of incidences in which finally the Supreme Court will rule on the, the core issue of um, religious freedom and artistic expression? We're hopeful that this means that the issue is resolved as to Jack Phillips. Um, certainly, people could try to harass Jack in other cases uh, and and bring uh, requests to him in an attempt to set him up and and to target him and 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 to to bring lawsuits against him. Uh, but we're hopeful that uh, people will will allow Jack to move on with his life and allow him to continue to serve everyone but just decline to make cakes that celebrate particular messages or uh, express particular messages or celebrate particular events that violate his religious beliefs. But the broader issue of whether creative professionals can live and work consistent with their religious beliefs remains to be decided. And so there are a number of other cases out there that hopefully will we'll get to that ultimate question and will give a resolution to creative professionals around the country. This has been a six-year nightmare for Jack Phillips and Masterpiece Uh, cake shop. How has this impacted his business? How has it impacted him personally? And as a man of faith, how does he um, how does he interpret the events of the last six years? Well, it has taken its toll on its bus- on his business. Um, by the state's first lawsuit against Jack, they effectively took away his wedding business, which was forty uh, percent of his income, and so that's now gone. Um, but even even still, uh, the last six months of the state's second prosecution has been very difficult on Jack and his family. For anyone who hasn't been involved in litigation, it's a very difficult process. Mm-hmm. Government asks you questions. They sit you down. They interview you. Uh, they they demand that you produce documents, and it's it's a very invasive, nerve wracking process. Um, but through it all, Jack has remained uh, committed to his faith and committed to operating his business consistent with his faith, in which he'll serve anyone. But he just declines to create cakes that express messages or celebrate events in conflict with his beliefs. Now, the attorney that was the subject in this latest. Assault um, had asked for the cake design pink on the inside, blue on the outside or the other way around, had also requested that a cake be made uh, with satanic themes and images. Uh, Is this just an an effort to harass him? Was there an effort to demonstrate that um, he's just unwilling to do things that are inconsistent with his faith? What can you tell us, if anything, about this attorney and efforts to try to uh, put him back in the spotlight and and somehow um, undermine his business? Well, from all accounts, it looks like this attorney was just trying to set up and harass Jack. Um, so when you when you take into account that this request um, came on the very day that the Supreme Court announced it was going to hear Jack's first case, that makes it suspect. And then on the phone, this attorney said to Masterpiece's representative, please repeat yourself so someone else can hear it. So that, again, makes it sound suspect. And then, as you mentioned, when the same attorney calls back a few months later and asks for a cake, uh, with a with satanic imagery and a cel- celebrating a Satan's birthday, we it appears that this person was just out to give Jack a hard time. Um, and so, what we're hopeful for is that people will respect Jack and that people won't won't continue to do this to him in the future. Um, and certainly, that the state of Colorado won't go along with it if other people try to do this. Yeah, uh, we can certainly. 
Hope that's the case. Well, first of all, let me say thank you to Alliance Defending Freedom. I so appreciate the work you do all around the country. This is a case that many of us are familiar with because it went all the way to the Supreme Court. But Alliance Defending Freedom is handling cases large and small all across the country, protecting religious freedom. And I so appreciate you and your colleagues uh, for standing up and, uh, and taking, uh, taking the lead on these. It's our pleasure, and we appreciate uh, the thousands of people out there who believe in what we do and who support and donate to our organization. Thank you so much, Jim. Thank you. Again, Jim Campbell is Senior Counsel with Alliance Defending Freedom, where he is the Director of the Center for Cultural Engagement and Scholarship. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk with David Bentham. Now, we had originally planned to talk with the other twin brother, but now we're getting David. I guess they're interchangeable. They look alike, and they, <laughs> they've co-authored a book, Bold and Broken, Becoming the Bridge Between Heaven and Earth. We're going to talk with David Bentham about their book and really their... Uh, their lives. And on Thursday, we'll talk with John Barry, author of Jesus Economy, a biblical view of poverty, the currency of love, and a pattern for lasting change. And then on Friday, we're planning on taking a look at the lighter side of the news and hope you will join us for that. And of course, if there is breaking news, we certainly will bring that. Even on a Friday, we'll give you some of the headlines um, uh, at the very end of the week. Well, just when you thought it was safe to go out. In fact, I had a conversation with my sister earlier in the day, and we were talking about how beautiful the weather has been. It's spring-like, and I was thinking about this weekend, whether or not I wanted to uh, trim the roses. I'm not sure it's time yet, but, you know, talking about going out into the yard and beginning to do the work that will occupy much of our time and attention for the months through summer. And then there was this headline, Dusting of Snow in Portland Area, Possible Wednesday and Thursday. I think, like many of you, I thought the snow was behind us, and it doesn't sound like we're going to get much of an accumulation, but there could be some snow falling over the next couple of days. There is a chance for more snow in the Portland area this week. Rod Hill, who is a KGW meteorologist, says the metro area could see a dusting early uh, tomorrow morning in areas where the temperatures dip below 32 degrees. He says the best chance of more than um, snow flurries will be in the south and the east of Portland. Cascade Foothill communities may see an inch or two before daylight or rather daytime temperatures warm to the 40s. For Portland, Wednesday may begin with temperatures just above freezing, but this will be a close call for light snow amounts and icy roadways. So here we are in March still thinking about snow and ice. Any early snow is going to quickly melt during the day as snow levels rise to about 2,000 feet. A second chance of early snow showers is also forecast for Thursday. So you might escape the uh, light dusting and a little bit of ice on Wednesday, but it could show up on Thursday. Next week's uh, cold comes on the heels of the third coldest February on record for Portland in terms of uh, mean temperature averages. Well, the last time Portland saw a 50-degree high was back on Groundhog Day. Uh, Since February the 2nd, Portland has seen all but one day average temperatures below normal, including a record low high temperature of 36 degrees back on the 27th of February. So um, we're going to see normal temperatures for uh, this time of year, question mark. Well, the majority of uh, weather outlook models have shown the extreme cold breaking in mid-March. So we've got a little ways to go. Today, of course, is just the early going for the month of March, this being the 5th. But by mid-March, we should... 
uh, sees some of the temperatures return to what's fairly normal. Normal mid-March daylight, or rather daytime highs, are usually between 55 and 60. I keep saying daylight because I'm reminded that daylight saving time begins this weekend. I can hardly believe we're there already. We just celebrated Christmas a day or two ago. Um, But anyway, uh, daylight saving time, that's coming up this weekend. So make sure that you are prepared to, let's see, we spring forward. So we lose some time. I think we need to take the day off, James, because we need to rest up for that, that hour that we uh, that we lose. Just take the James says we need to take the week. (laughs) I'm all for that. Let's do it. Anyway, that's coming up this weekend and normal mid-March daylight or daytime uh, highs are usually between 55, 60. We can expect that sometime mid-March. So keep that uh, keep that in mind. Uh, Once again, on Wednesday, looking forward to a conversation with uh, David Bentham. He's the co-author of Bold and Broken, Becoming the Bridge Between Heaven and Earth. You might recall David and his brother were the pair of twins that had an HGTV program that was set to air. It's been maybe a year or two ago now. Um, Twin brothers, much like another pair of twins who are now on HGTV. I'm not sure they were already there or what happened. But anyway, uh, the Bentham brothers were identified as serious Christians as followers of Jesus, and that was troubling to some HGTV fans, particularly because they had been outspoken on some issues of biblical import. I believe it it centered around the subject of sexuality, and as you um, may have guessed, that's unacceptable to some, that the diversity of opinion, and they hadn't said anything offensive, uh, they'd simply stated their um, beliefs based on Scripture. They hadn't uh, spoken out against any individuals or groups. Uh, nonetheless, uh, while HGTV um, couldn't handle the uh, the backlash, uh, decided to drop the show. The Benthams were very clear that HGTV was not responsible. They didn't believe that they had been mistreated or mishandled. And these are guys who believe in this, the sovereignty of God and him ordering their steps. They were not bitter about it. They didn't. There was no backlash on their part, criticizing the network and so on. It was an opportunity for them uh, to have a few moments to have a mic, perhaps, and share their Um, share their faith. But uh, nonetheless, that's one of the twins that we're going to be talking with on Wednesday. David Bentham, one of the pair, uh, who co-authored with his brother the book Bold and Broken, Becoming the Bridge Between Heaven and Earth. So looking forward to that on on Wednesday. Earlier in the day, we had an opportunity to talk with uh, Dr. Clarence Schuler. He's the co-author of Choose Greatness, 11 Wise Decisions That Brave Young Men Make. And it's a rather interesting book. If you didn't have the opportunity to hear the conversation, I want to encourage you to check it out on our podcast where all of our interviews can be heard. Um, and he uh, was mentored and he co-authored the book with his mentee, whose name has completely escaped my memory. But nonetheless, uh, just a great conversation, a great book for young men about the decisions they make early in life that will set the course of their lives. I want to encourage you to check that out. Again, you can go to kpdq.com to the podcast and find out uh, find out more. By the way, if you are considering Christian education for your sons or daughters, or perhaps the grandson or daughter, uh, we are running a great opportunity for you. KPDQ listeners can save up to 40% on Christian school tuition. That's schools like um, Tualatin Valley Academy, Columbia Christian, Pilgrim Lutheran Christian School, and many, many others. To find out more and get uh, your discount, you can visit Listener Savings. That's Listener Singular, Savings, plural. Listener Savings. Uh, dot com. And let me encourage you to do that because we've got some great 
uh, deals there. Also want to remind you that tickets are on sale right now for the Gospel Sing Live. That's coming up Friday, August the 16th, 7 p.m. at Riverfront Park in Salem. Now, you might be thinking, it's March the 5th. Why are you talking about an event in August? First of all, tickets are going to go fast, and it will be August before you and I know it. Um, you know, another day or two, week or two from now, we're going to be talking about, man, I can't believe it's August and the concert's coming up tomorrow. So this is going to be a great evening of Southern Gospel music. We're celebrating 50 years of the Gospel Sing here on KPDQ. West Hampton will be performing Tribute Quartet, the Booth Brothers. Tickets on sale now. Go to um, kpdq.com for all the important details and reserve your spot. Again, that's Friday, August 16, 7 p.m. at Riverfront Park in Salem. A great evening of Southern Gospel Music. Finally, you can have the best day ever with the ladies of KPDQ and 1041 The Fish, our sister station, and the best day ever podcast. Now, this is going to feature the women here that you, whose voices you hear on the air, KPDQ and The Fish, Summer Shore, Crystal Thornton, Cat Taylor, and me. You can get to know all of us behind the mic and hear honest, upbeat conversations about life and family, faith and friendship. This is Best Day Ever, our podcast. New episodes come out twice a month on Mondays. You can subscribe and download the latest at kpdq.com. I want to thank James Blind for engineering today's program as, well, producing and engineering a portion of it, and Clark Hilton for engineering the bulk of today's program. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.